Well, good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to Wolfson, um, and a warm welcome to Robert Reed, Lord Reed, um, who will be addressing us tonight. <clears throat> this is the first of a three-part series of lectures on various aspects of the law. On the 5th of March, Linda Mulcahy and Emma Roden will be talking about virtual justice, the way participation in courts is increasingly down the line. And on the 4th of June, Des Manderson, the director of the Centre for Law, Arts and Humanities at the Australian National University, will be flying in to talk to us about the intersection of those three disciplines. Well, to much of the world, Lord Reid is known as the Deputy President of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, soon to replace Baroness Hale as its President. But of course, we know that his principal role is as visitor to Wolfson College, and he's been doing us that honour since May last year, when he took his current post at the Supreme Court. But what is the visitor? Well, the statutes tell us that the visitor of the college shall be the high steward of the university. That doesn't help very much. But the statutes then on, they go on to say that the visitor may visit the college uh -huh, and may require an answer of the president or of the governing body or of any member or members of the college to any inquiry which he or she shall make whenever he or she deems it expedient for ensuring, ensuring the due observance of the provisions of the Charter and these statutes. So in shorthand, the visitor is there to ensure that we behave ourselves according to our own rules. So you have all been warned. Robert, as you will hear, is a Scottish judge, and one of his particular areas of expertise is human rights law in Scotland and elsewhere. He serves as one of the UK's ad hoc judges at the European Court of Human Rights, and he's also a non-permanent judge at the Court of Final Appeal of Hong Kong. After his defil at Balliol, Robert entered the judicial world. He was appointed QC in 1995 and sat as judge of the Scottish High Court of Judiciary in 1998 as Lord Reid. In 2012, he was sworn in as a justice of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom. The Supreme Court may sometimes be seen as a relatively discreet part of the British Constitution, wielding significant power, yes, but doing so in a very understated way. But on the 24th of September this year, in its judgment on the prorogation of the Houses of Parliament, the court made perhaps the highest profile decision in its history. It found that the government's decision to recommend proroguing for five weeks rather than the normal four to five days in the run-up to a potential major constitutional change on the 31st of October, Britain's planned departure from the EU, was unlawful. It therefore quashed the decision, meaning prorogation never happened. Although we are unlikely to hear tonight exactly what the conversation between the justices <laughs> as they reached that decision covered, it gives a sense of the topicality of having Lord Reid with us today. So with that as background, and introduction, it gives me very great pleasure to invite Lord Reid to speak tonight. Well, thank you very much, Tim. It's a great pleasure to be here uh, at Wolfson. Well, um, I got the date wrong on my first slide, but the 
as you can see, the series of lectures is called The Experience of Courts. I've been asked to speak particularly about European law, focusing on human rights law, and on the relationship between European law and the law of the UK. By European law, uh, I mean not the law of the individual nations of Europe, but law which applies across Europe as a whole, or at least a substantial part of it. European law in that sense uh, has, of course, been much discussed of late as people consider the implications of Britain's withdrawal from the EU. As a serving judge, I'm entirely neutral about the political debate, and I'm not going to say anything about it. Instead, I want to explain in broad terms what European law is and how it affects the law in the UK, particularly in relation to human rights. My remarks, uh, I should say to the, the lordons I see in the audience, um, are intended for an audience of non-lawyers, and I'll try to avoid technicalities as much as I can. Given the title of the lecture series, uh, I better say something at the outset about my own experience of European courts. When I was at the bar, I was instructed, uh, usually to represent the government, in cases before the European Court uh, of Human Rights between 1988 and 1998 when I became a judge. Shortly afterwards, I was nominated by the government to sit as an ad hoc judge uh, on the uh, Court of Human Rights. Uh, that's to say, a judge who sits there temporarily, and I remain on the panel of ad hoc judges nominated by the government uh, today. So I've sat on the uh, European Court of Human Rights from time to time over a period of 20 years. I also deal with the judgments of that court on a regular basis in the course of my work on the Supreme Court. And the two courts meet together uh, for discussions quite frequently. EU law uh, is something that I taught as a college tutor about 40 years ago, and questions of EU law often arose when I was in practice at the bar. On the Supreme Court, my colleagues and I have to deal with EU law virtually every week, and our court has regular meetings with the Court of Justice of the European Union. I've chosen the title A Tale of Two Europes because when you consider Europe in relation to law, it quickly becomes evident that there is not one Europe to be considered, but two. On one side, there is the Council of Europe, and on the other, the European Union. Although these two organisations have many members in common, including the UK, they are very different in their origins and their purposes and an uh, impact on the law. I'd like this evening to outline the development of the UK's relationship with each of them and the implications that the law stemming from each of them, particularly in the field of human rights, has had on the law in this country. Let me begin with some history. The UK and its constituent nations have always had significant legal connections with the continent of Europe. However, the manner in which our law relates to European law today 
has its foundations in the aftermath of the Second World War, when civil society and economics were devastated throughout much of Europe. The Council of Europe rose from the ashes. Sir Winston Churchill being credited with providing significant impetus for its establishment both before and directly after the end of the war. The Council was established in 1949 by the Treaty of London. The UK was a founding member, along with Belgium, Denmark, France, Ireland, Italy, the Netherlands, Norway and Sweden. The purpose of the Council was clear from the outset. The preamble to its foundational statute expresses the conviction that the pursuit of peace based upon justice and international cooperation is vital for the preservation of human society and civilization and reaffirms the contracting state's devotion to the spiritual and moral values which are the common heritage of their peoples and the true source of individual freedom, political liberty and the rule of law, principles which form the basis of all genuine democracy. Crucially, and reflecting the Council's genesis in the war and its aftermath, Article 3 of the statute requires that member states must accept the principles of a rule of law and of the enjoyment by all persons within its jurisdiction of human rights and fundamental freedoms. It's no surprise, therefore, that one of the earliest accomplishments of the Council of Europe was the conclusion of the Convention for the Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms, colloquially known as the European Convention on Human Rights, or the ECHR. It's a short document, rather like the US Bill of Rights. It lists 13 substantive rights to which others have been added by later protocols. Um, I should perhaps explain the Latin for in Article 7 means no, no crime without law, no punishment without law, and it's a guarantee of legal certainty. So, for example, you can't have retrospective criminal legislation. So, those are the rights. British lawyers played an important part in the drafting of the Convention, and the rights that it guarantees generally correspond to rights protected by the common law. The Convention was opened for signature on the 4th of November 1950, just 18 months after the Council was formed. In 1951, the UK became the first country to ratify the Convention. A few years later, the Council adopted the European flag and the European anthem based on Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Nowadays, those are associated with the EU, but they were actually adopted first by the Council of Europe. The fact that the EU subsequently adopted them also uh, is perhaps one of the factors that's led to confusion between the two organisations. The Council of Europe has a secretariat, a, a committee of ministers, and a parliamentary assembly, uh, 
the Assembly being composed of delegations from national parliaments, all of these institutions being based in Strasbourg. Its membership is more open than that of the EU, uh, not being dependent on economic capacity, but simply on a declaration of willingness to accept the Council's values. For that reason, it has a current membership of 47 nations, with a total population of 830 million people. So that shows you its extent. Um, all the countries you would normally think of as being in Europe are part of it, apart from Belarus, which is the grey uh, space in Eastern Europe, uh, and also the Vatican City. It's far larger than the EU and includes countries which are politically unstable or where the rule of law remains a work in progress. The Council's activities centre on promoting the rule of law, democracy, justice, security and human rights, partly through multilateral treaties and partly through projects carried out by the numerous bodies that it has created. I can give two examples from my own experience. In the early 2000s, when Turkey was applying for membership of the EU, the EU Commission uh, asked the Council of Europe to carry out with it a joint initiative on democratization and human rights in Turkey. Uh, this was um, almost immediately after the first election of uh, Mr. Erdogan. I was asked to act as an expert advisor to the project along with a French judge, and after two years' work, we completed a report on the progress made, which formed part of a material on which Turkey's application for accession to the EU was considered. More recently, I've been one of a number of judges working on promoting the rule of law in the Western Balkans in projects involving the Council of Europe along with the British Foreign Office and a number of NGOs. However, much the most important achievement of the Council of Europe is the establishment under the ECHR of the European Court of Human Rights, also situated in Strasbourg. This is the court's uh, current building. You're, one of the future lectures is going to be by Professor Linda Mulcahy um, talking about the architecture of courts. The architecture of this court and another court I'm going to come to are quite interesting. This one was designed by uh, Richard Rogers. And it's meant to symbolize the, um, the scales of justice. And it's meant also to symbolize transparency, uh, the, the two large drums being, uh, well, when the building was designed, it, there was a court and also the Commission on Human Rights, and the idea was that one would sit in, in one of these drums and the other in the, other, in the second one. In the event, the Commission had been abolished by the time the building was completed, so the court sits in one of the drums and the judges have their discussions in the other one. And um, as you can see, the, uh, the, the, the rooms are, 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 um, are glazed, which these days is unusual for courtrooms. And that's the main entrance. It's on the River Eel um, in a, a beautiful location. 
The, off- the judges' offices are in the, the modern part on the left. Uh, and that's what it looks like when you go in. The court has jurisdiction to decide complaints brought against the member states for failure to comply with their obligations under the Convention. This is something that's very unusual in international law. When a state enters into a treaty, it undertakes obligations towards the other contracting parties, that's to say the other states, uh, obligations under international law. But those obligations are not normally enforceable by private individuals. But anyone who considers that their rights under the Convention have been violated by one of the contracting states can make an application to the European Court of Human Rights. This is not a right of appeal against the decisions of national courts, but a separate independent application to the International Court in Strasbourg asking it to decide whether the state in question has complied with its international obligations under the Convention. If the court decides that the state has not complied with its obligations, it will make an order declaring that there has been a violation and sometimes also requiring the state to pay compensation to the person whose rights were violated. The court's orders take effect against the state in question under international law, They're not enforceable under national law or against individuals or organisations other than the state in question. So, for example, if somebody loses an appeal in the UK Supreme Court, perhaps because the court is bound to apply an Act of Parliament which is incompatible with the Convention, the losing party may then make an application to the Strasbourg Court complaining that the UK has violated their rights under the Convention. If the Strasbourg Court agrees, its decision does not overturn the decision of the Supreme Court or have any effect on the Act of Parliament, but it places the UK government under an obligation in international law to alter the law of the UK so that our law will in future comply with the Convention. The government has sometimes taken time to comply with that obligation, uh, most notably in relation to giving the vote to prisoners, but it has never failed to comply with the obligation to amend our law sooner or later. In 1998, an important change was made to UK law when the Human Rights Act was passed. I'm sorry, I should have shown you that picture. That shows the court in session, um, and as you can see, in a grand chamber case, it's a very large court. Um, Yes, coming on to the Human Rights Act. So this act passed in 1998, made a very important change to our law. Although As I've explained, the UK was uh, already a signatory to the Convention. Um, The Convention was not directly enforceable under our domestic law. The, The crucial step that the Human Rights Act took was to make the rights protected by the Convention 
part of our domestic law by imposing on public authorities, including the courts, a duty to comply with the Convention rights unless an Act of Parliament requires them to do otherwise. The Human Rights Act also provides victims of violations of Convention rights by public authorities with remedies uh, at the domestic level. It also provides that any court determining a question arising in connection with a Convention right must take into account any relevant decision of the Strasbourg Court. The Act also requires courts to interpret legislation in a way which is compatible with the Convention rights so far as it is possible to do so, and to make a declaration of incompatibility where an Act of Parliament can't be interpreted in that way. In practice, whenever the Court has made such a declaration, the Government has always responded to it, and the legislation in question has always been amended so as to rectify the problem that the Court had identified. This Act, the Human Rights Act, has resulted in judgments of the Strasbourg Court having an important influence on courts in the UK. We consider them when they are relevant to a point raised before us, and we will usually follow a principle which has been established by the Strasbourg Court um, in a clear and constant line of decisions. Nonetheless, the decision remains with domestic institutions as to how they will respond to a decision of the Strasbourg Court. For example, wherever domestic court takes a view that Strasbourg has misunderstood our domestic law, it may decide not to follow the Strasbourg decision, but instead to engage in a dialogue with the court uh, via its own judgments. For example, um, a few years ago, the Supreme Court heard a case concerned with preventative detention, where large numbers of anti-monarchist demonstrators intending to disrupt the wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton had been detained by the police until the wedding was over and then released without charge. The Strasbourg Court had previously held that preventative detention was in violation of the right to liberty in a German case concerned with football hooligans. Our court declined to follow that decision and explained in its judgment why, um, why we thought that preventative detention could be justified in some circumstances. The Strasbourg Court monitors our judgments and it accepted our view and departed from its previous decision. This sort of dialogue has occurred several times. The Strasbourg Court doesn't always alter its view in response to our judgments, but it has done so on a number of occasions, and when it hasn't, it has at least considered our concerns. We also, as I've said earlier, have face-to-face -face discussions with the Strasbourg judges quite frequently, and we have a good relationship with them. Each contracting state has a judge on the court, and that judge always sits on cases from his or her country to ensure that the court understands the relevant law and social conditions in that country. Uh, personally, I found it a fascinating experience to sit with judges from other cultures and other legal systems and uh, to try to persuade them to my own point of view. Considering the Strasbourg Court and its judgments in the broadest terms, 
my overall impression is of a group of judges from all over Europe working cooperatively to establish minimum standards on the basis of a broad European consensus as to human rights and democratic values, while recognising the right of domestic institutions to find their own solutions where there is no consensus at the European level or where states wish to go beyond a minimum level of rights protection. The court has been criticised in this country for not confining itself to a literal interpretation of the Articles of the Convention and instead inventing rights of its own devising. That's not, in my view, a fair criticism, and it's also one which doesn't take account of changes in the court's practice uh, during the last 20 years. In the earlier years, the court had to flesh out the bare bones of the convention rights by applying them in a creative way to the facts of the cases that came before it. This was unavoidable because of the brevity and generality of the terms in which the protected rights are set out in the convention. And one can see the same process in the history of the US Supreme Court's interpretation of the Bill of Rights or the Canadian Supreme Court's interpretation of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. For example, Article 8 of the ECHR uh, provides that uh, everyone has the right to respect for his private and family life, and so forth. There's nothing said there about sexual life, but that is obviously an important aspect of a person's private life, and so it must be protected by Article 8. So in the case of Dudgeon uh, and the United Kingdom, in 1981, the court upheld a complaint that the criminalisation of homosexual activity in Northern Ireland even when committed in private by consenting adults, was in breach of Article 8. That decision led to the decriminalisation of such acts in Northern Ireland the following year. Nor is anything said in Article 8 about state surveillance of private communications, but it's obvious that they too are an aspect of a person's private life. So in the case of Malone and the United Kingdom in 1984, the court upheld a complaint that the applicant's privacy had been breached by the opening of his mail and the tapping of his phone line by the police, since there was no legal regime in the UK regulating the use of surveillance powers. If we go back to the text of it for a moment... See, there should be no interference by public authority with the exercise of this right except as such as is in accordance with the law. And so the court held in the Malone case that because there was no legal regime whatsoever governing phone tapping in the UK or the opening of mail, it could not be said that the interference was in accordance with the law. That decision was followed by the introduction the following year of the first UK legislation regulating the interception of communications. And that decision has continued to be important, for example, in ensuring that there are legal controls on the retention uh, by the police of DNA samples and on the use of facial recognition technology. Over time, as the case law of the Strasbourg Court has become more and more fully developed and more fully integrated into national legal systems, the Court has increasingly recognised 
but the primary role in securing obligations under convention lies with the member states. This was formally recognised in the Brighton Declaration of 2012, and since then the Court has tended increasingly to focus on whether national institutions have given careful consideration to the question of compliance with the Convention. If they have, if they have identified and applied the relevant principles of the Court's case law, the Court will generally accept their assessment as to how the principles should be applied in the context of their national life. As a result, the Court accepts that there need not be only one, but there may be many right-compliant ways in which the Member States may address a given issue. It doesn't insist on a uniform response. As the examples I've given already, just two examples, Dudgeon and Malone, illustrate, the Convention has had a profound effect on our domestic law. That's partly because many areas of our law have been altered in response to its requirements, as in those cases. It's also because the habit of mind, of thinking in terms of fundamental principles, has led the courts to, to grasp the extent to which our domestic law itself protects fundamental principles, which it hasn't historically articulated in that way. The right to life, for example, or the right to a fair trial, are protected in our domestic law through a myriad of legal rules, often pigeonholed in different branches of the law, but we tend not to think of them as in terms of uh, a more overarching principle. So in recent times, one of the mo most notable developments in our law has been what is sometimes called common law constitutionalism, as courts have come to think in terms of the deeper underlying principles uh, as much as in terms of the epiphenomena, as one might describe them, uh, of particular rules of the law of tort or administrative law or whatever it might be. I'm going to leave discussion of the Council of Europe there uh, and turn to the second of my two Europes, the EU. Going back to the period after the Second World War, while the Council of Europe placed human rights and democracy at the forefront of its agenda, Europe remained in physical ruins. Concerned by the lack of progress on issues of economics and trade, and also in the case of some of its proponents by a perception that the Council of Europe was never going to lead to European unification, in 1951, Belgium, France, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands and West Germany entered into the Treaty of Paris, which created the European coal and steel community. It's so long ago that you can see that Algeria in those days formed part of France. The focus on these resources, coal and steel, was based on the idea that they were essential to the waging of war, so that if their production and trade across Europe in those commodities were tied together, war within Europe would be less likely. Six years later, in 1957, the same six countries entered into the Treaty of Rome, which created the European Economic Community, within which a customs union was established. The treaty's opening words expressed the member states' determination to lay the foundations of an ever closer union among the peoples of Europe. They also entered into the Euratom Treaty, which created the European Atomic Energy Community, 
designed to secure cooperation in the development of nuclear energy. In 1967, those three organisations, the Coal and Steel Community, the Economic Community and Euratom, were merged and became known as the European Communities. Six years later, in 1973, the United Kingdom joined along with Denmark and Ireland. In 1985, the European Communities adopted the flag of the Council of Europe and the European Anthem uh, developed by the Council of Europe but they remained entirely separate organisations with different members. Today, there are 28 members of what's now called the European Union. And just as a reminder, you can contrast that with the Council of Europe. That change in name to the European Union, brought about by the Maastricht Treaty in 1993, reflected the expansion of goals from those related to trade to a much more diverse agenda, including the environment, health, external relations, security, justice and migration. That development was based in part on the fact that a single market for goods and services, capital and labour, can only be fully effective if there is also a single zone for other purposes which have economic consequences. And also on the desire expressed in the preamble to the Treaty of Maastricht to continue the process of creating an ever closer union. So the Maastricht Treaty signalled the creation of much closer connections between the member states, including the objective that the fundamental status of individuals living in the EU would be citizenship of the EU rather than nationality of a member state. The EU has important legislative functions in which the European Commission, the European Parliament and the Council of Ministers all take part. All of these institutions are based principally in Brussels. The European Commission also performs the EU's executive functions along with national governments uh, acting under EU law. Most significantly for the present discussion, the apex court for the EU is the Court of Justice of the European Union, the CJEU, based in Luxembourg. The three towers, called the, they're known as the, gold, the Golden Towers or the Towers of Babel, um, house the translation service. There are so many languages in the EU that most of the time and staff uh, of cases in the EU are taken up with uh, translation. The Court of Justice occupies the black building in the middle, the centre of that being the courtroom. And there's also a first instance court called the General Court, which is in the, uh, the building on the right, about halfway up the screen. So that's the, the main court building, viewed from another angle. I think it looks something like a, a science fiction. It's by a French architect called Dominique Perrault. And it has the most grandiose interior I have ever seen in any courtroom anywhere in the world. This is it. <laughs> Absolutely extraordinary. It's like something out of a science fiction film, don't you think? And Imagine being counsel, standing at 
one of these lecterns here, you're in the position of a supplicant before the lords of the galaxy. And there they are. Uh, so this is the successor of a court originally established in 1951 for the coal and steel community. EU law is fundamentally different in nature from the ECHR. As I explained earlier, the ECHR sets minimum standards of human rights protection across Europe, but it operates on an international level rather than necessarily forming part of national law. And it doesn't have to be applied in the same way as in every country because of the room allowed for national variations. The EU, on the other hand, is and has to be based on identical EU laws applying directly across the EU in the form of the treaties themselves and uh, regulations made by the EU institutions under the treaties. Where uniform EU laws have not yet been adopted, the EU is based on the harmonisation of national laws so as to conform to a common template laid down in EU law in the form of directives made by the EU institutions. Reflecting that approach, our national law in the form of the European Communities Act of 1972 makes the EU treaties, regulations and directives directly part of our law and gives them a higher status than other national law such as Acts of Parliament. Against that background, the main purpose of the CJEU is to ensure that EU law is applied consistently across the entirety of the Union. It does this mainly through giving rulings on the interpretation of EU law at the request of national courts. Any national court can make a reference to, to, to Luxembourg if it considers that a decision on such a question is necessary to enable it to give judgment. And a final court, such as the UK Supreme Court, is obliged to make a reference unless the answer is already clear from the existing case law of the CJEU. So in practice, the Supreme Court makes references fairly frequently. It is important that we do so because EU legislation uh, requires a, a very different interpretative technique from UK legislation a technique which is much more driven by a judicial assessment of policy objectives. In practice, the CJEU has historically adopted an integrationist approach, seeing itself as the guardian of the treaties and of a long-term goal of European unity. Although it comprises uh, a judge from each member state, there is no requirement that, for example, the judge from the UK should sit on a case involving the UK in order to ensure that the domestic perspective is understood. That's because the CJEU is not concerned with purely domestic law or domestic conditions. Its concern is the proper interpretation, and perhaps more importantly, the consistent interpretation and application of EU law, of which it's the ultimate arbiter. For that reason, its decisions are domestically binding under the European Communities Act. There's no question of the sort of dialogue that we have with Strasbourg. National courts don't always find it easy to use the judgments of the CJEU. Um, unlike the Strasbourg court, but following the French tradition, 
the CJEU does not permit individual judgments, uh, whether separate or dissenting. There's only one judgment of a court expressed in fairly formal language. There's a high proportion of what lawyers call boilerplate, that's to say standard wording. As a product of a variety of uh, points of view, the judgments often uh, reflect a compromise. That can affect the clarity of their expression, especially when the court doesn't feel ready to take an important step and wishes to hedge its bets. Again, following the French tradition, the court won't normally acknowledge any change in its approach, which has to be inferred from sometimes subtle changes in language. Questions of translation can be important. Uh, for example, we had a case recently where we had to consider whether the English version of a judgment which used the word liability should be understood in a narrower sense than that word would normally uh, bear because the German version spoke of Schadenshaltung, which has a different sense. There can also be differences of view between national courts such as the German Federal Constitutional Court or our Supreme Court and the CJEU for example, as to whether national courts are bound to accept its rulings uh, as to the extent of its own powers uh, under the treaties, or as to the relationship between the EU treaties and other treaties to which the member states are party, or as to the preeminence of EU law over fundamental aspects of national constitutional law. It's partly as a result of problems of the latter kind that the CJEU developed its own body of case law on human rights protection so as to be able to require, for example, the German Constitutional Court to defer to its decisions rather than applying the provisions of a German basic law, the Grundgesetz. Quite early in its case law, the CJEU held that EU law should draw on national constitutional traditions, including the ECHR, in assessing whether acts of EU institutions were compatible with fundamental rights. In the Maastricht Treaty, it was agreed that the EU would respect fundamental rights as laid down in the ECHR and guaranteed by the constitutional traditions of the member states. Finally, the Lisbon Treaty of 2009 gave effect to the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union, which sets out political, social and economic rights guaranteed within the ambit of the EU. Although the Charter was first promulgated in 2000, it didn't have full effect until, as I say, 2009. Most of the rights uh, which are legally enforceable by individuals are very similar to the rights protected by the ECHR. However, the Charter applies to member states only when they are acting within the scope of EU law rather than at large, and so it's more restricted in its application than the ECHR. At the same time, it's possible that it might in some circumstances provide greater protection than the ECHR. For example, while the uh, Convention prohibits discrimination in the enjoyment of Convention rights, a claimant has to be able to link that prohibition to another Convention right in order to have a remedy under the Convention. In contrast, the Charter's rights to equality before the law uh, has to be linked to EU law. That right might therefore apply in circumstances where the ECHR prohibition of discrimination does not, uh, or indeed vice versa. 
The protection of personal data is also something expressly provided for in the Charter, whereas the Convention relies on the wider protection that we saw earlier of a right to respect for, for private life. That might conceivably make a difference in some circumstances. The most significant difference from a British perspective, however, is that because the Charter is part of EU law, our domestic courts are obliged to disapply Acts of Parliament found to conflict with it, whereas they have no such duty or even power with respect to Acts of Parliament which violate the Convention. As I've explained, however, Acts that violate the Convention or are found to violate the Convention are sooner or later amended so as to rectify the problem, either following a declaration of incompatibility by a domestic court or following a ruling against the UK in Strasbourg. Like the ECHR, EU law has had uh, a profound impact on our domestic law, although I wouldn't say that it's been as profound in the area of human rights outside some specific contexts, such as equality law. Its general principles, um, principles such as proportionality and legal certainty, which are largely shared with the ECHR, have become reasonably familiar to British courts and have had an influence on our application of the traditional but vaguer grounds of judicial review under our domestic law, uh, such as unreasonableness and unfairness. So having explained the tale of two Europes to date, you might be asking yourselves, what happens next? I can't predict what's, uh, what may happen in relation to Brexit any more than you can, and I'm not going to try, particularly during an election period. All that need be said is that the EU Withdrawal Act, which Parliament passed in 2018, provides for EU law as it stands on exit day to be generally preserved and converted into domestic law. There is an exception in respect of a charter, but not in respect of any fundamental rights or principles which exist irrespective of the Charter. So much EU law will be retained, including much EU law relating to human rights. But the Supreme Court will become the final arbiter of its meaning and application, and uh, Parliament will be able to uh, amend the body of retained EU law if it so wishes. In carrying out its uh, function of arbitrating on the meaning and application of retained EU law, the Supreme Court is permitted by the Act to have regard to post-exit decisions of the CJEU so far as relevant. If we leave on the terms of a recent withdrawal agreement, there will also be a tr transitional period during which the, the UK's legal institutions and, of course, other aspects of civil society can adapt to the shift in the nature of the law. There will be stability in the human rights landscape, uh, not only insofar as rights recognised in EU law as at exit day, irrespective of the Charter, form part of retained EU law, but also, uh, most importantly, because there are no current plans for the UK to depart from the Council of Europe um, or to withdraw from the ECHR. So there remains a strong and clear European framework for the UK to rely on for the protection of human rights, besides uh, protection provided under our domestic law by the Human Rights Act 
and by other statutory and common law principles. Whatever formal relationship exists between the law of the United Kingdom and of the two Europes going forward, it's plain that to date the relationship has been a symbiotic one. The UK played a key role in establishing the Council of Europe and was relatively early in joining what is now the European Union. Particularly in relation to the Strasbourg Court, it can be said that our law has benefited from the interaction, while our own domestic position has also been taken into account at the European level. As globalisation is constantly drawing all parts of the world closer together, continental Europe will remain our closest geographical neighbour and a region with which uh, we have a great deal of shared history and many shared values. Wherever we find ourselves in 2020, we can be sure that the two Europes will continue to play a role in our future, and I, I dare say the UK a part in theirs. Thank you for listening.